Thank you, Lee, for helping us to worship. I'm so glad to have more of the band with us leading us in worship this morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to spend the month of April focused on this one chapter of the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we examine this concept of the resurrection. We'll be looking at that for the entire month of April. And today we'll be thinking about the resurrection in terms of Palm Sunday that we celebrate this day, that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey during that last week of his life uh, that you heard about in the call to worship at the beginning of our service today. You know, Palm Sunday is so interesting to me. Uh, Perhaps it is to you as well. But it interests me because it's hard for me to believe that something that happened this week, 2,000 years ago, would be celebrated by over 2 billion people on this planet so many years later. Well, what is it that happened that week that people 2,000 years later would still be celebrating what happened in Jerusalem during that week? And it's hard to believe that what happened that many years ago would make a difference in our lives today. But in the text that we're going to look at, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul writes about what happened that week. And it's important that we rightly understand what happened. And here's why it's so important that we have a right understanding of what happened during that week following Palm Sunday. If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus, verse 2 of the text I'm going to read says that we are saved if we hold on to what happened that week of Palm Sunday. So it's important that we know what is it that we need to hold on to in order to be saved. Verse 3 of the text I'll read will tell us that what happened that week is something that we pass on to other people. It's important that we pass on the right thing without adding anything of our own or without leaving anything out. So it's important for us to get it right about what happened that week in Jerusalem. If you are not yet a believer, if you are just curious or maybe even skeptical of the Bible or of Christianity or the claims of Christ, I want you to know that What we're going to look at today is the very core of Christianity. Before history and tradition, before uh, there was any opportunity to change, before anything is lost in translation against cultures. And so if you are going to reject Christ in Christianity, let's make sure you're rejecting the real thing, which I think we'll have an opportunity to see in this text this morning. And for all of us, I want us to see the incredible power that what happened that week has to transform people. As I read the text, I want you to listen for verse 9, where the Apostle Paul says that he was turned from being a persecutor of the church to a pastor of the church by what happened on that week of Palm Sunday. You see, Paul had been a Pharisee. So obsessed with following God and following God's law. You want to talk about social distancing? Paul would not even eat with 
or touch something that had been touched by someone who was of a different race or of a different religion than what he was. And those who were of his same race and of the same religion, when they started saying something a little bit different than his understanding of what the scriptures, the Old Testament said, Paul got authority to kill those folks. And Paul says in God's word that what happened that week of Palm Sunday turned him from being a murderer of the church to a missionary for the church. And so let's look at Paul's explanation of what happened that week of Palm Sunday. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11, and then I'll pray for us as we come to God's word. Hear now God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray that you would give us a right understanding of what happened that week beginning on Palm Sunday and ending with Easter Sunday. And Father, I pray that you would give us this right understanding through these words that you inspired through the Apostle Paul and through the preaching of that word, even the preaching through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we come to the text this morning, I want us just to ask two questions together. First, let's ask, what happened that week that began with Palm Sunday and goes through Easter Sunday? What happened that week in Jerusalem? And second, how should we respond to what happened that week? So what happened that week? How should we respond? Let's look at those two questions together. First, what happened that week? Notice in verse 1, we read that Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Paul is reminding them of something he had preached to them in the past. Now, you may wonder, well, why is that introduction important? It seems like it's just kind of background information. But realize that this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth was written about 20 years after the cross. So the letter's written about 20 years after that week in Jerusalem that we're looking at. But notice that Paul is speaking in the past tense. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you 
back when I was there among you. You see, Paul is writing this letter. You can look in 1 Corinthians 16 from Ephesus where he is on his third missionary journey. And he's referring back to something that he had taught them, that he had preached or proclaimed to them three to five years earlier on his second missionary journey. And so what that means is that what we read here is within 15 to 20 years of the events that they describe. Now, think about that in our terms. If I was going to tell you something about something that happened just uh, about 20 years ago or a little less than that, I would say, you know, 9-11 of 2001. If I started saying things about that that were not true, there are many people still alive who were present and could say, hey, that's not right. That's not what happened. But Paul is talking about something that has happened that close in time, so it gives some reliability. He even names names of people that can confirm what he is saying. Also, if you're skeptical of Christianity, if you're wondering what it was like before there was an organized church, before the the history and tradition that's been added, we get a chance to see here the very core of what Paul was preaching. In verse 11, he's saying it's what All the apostles have been preaching right there in those years, right after the events, as they occurred. In fact, we don't even lose anything in translation because Paul is writing in the Greek language to Greek people. Corinth is in Greece, and he's writing to them in Greek. So we don't even lose anything in translation. So we get the pure, unadulterated gospel in all of its fullness here as Paul preaches it. In verse 3 of the text, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. I think that's significant for us to look at as well. Because Paul has been writing in this epistle about a lot of things that we think about in the church. He's been writing about church discipline, about sexual immorality, about marriage, about spiritual gifts about what's okay in worship and what's not okay in worship, about gender roles within the church, all things that we're interested in today. But Paul says this that he's about to talk about is of first importance. You see, Christians through the ages might disagree on those other things, but is these things, this is the the line of demarcation that determines whether you are indeed Christian or not Christian if you can affirm these things that we look at. So this is the core of the gospel, the very central part of Christianity itself. So let's take a look at what that is. What is it that we need to get right? What is it that we need to believe? What is it that transforms people? What is it that saves us? Well, let's keep going there in verses 3 and into verse 4. Paul says that this matter of first importance is this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's it, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the Scripture. Let's spend a few moments just unpacking those ideas. First, he says Christ died for our sins. The word for Christ in Greek is Christos. It's just the Greek word for anointed king. 
So the original audience is thinking, hey, this is something about a king, which is exactly what Jesus declares himself to be on that Palm Sunday, right? He, for the first time, embraces the messianic term, son of David. He takes him out and rides into Jerusalem when only kings or other royalty would take a mount to ride into Jerusalem for the Passover meal. All the people hear him making this declaration because they begin to say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees, we heard in the call to worship, are upset and saying you should call these folks down and correct them. Jesus refuses to do that. And of course they reach this conclusion because Zechariah 9 and verse 9 says that Israel should expect for her king to come riding on a donkey. And of course, when he arrives, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple, which Malachi says is something that the promised king would do. And so the, this idea of Messiah promised in the Old Testament is the anointed king that is riding into Jerusalem. And that's exactly what the original audience would be expecting when they hear the word Christ. They would be thinking a king, a kingdom, kingship. Which, by the way, if you read Mark's gospel, that's exactly the way it starts. The beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he comes proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. In fact, that's an important word, that word gospel. You see it mentioned twice there, once in verse 1, once in verse 2. Paul refers to what he's saying as the gospel. And, of course, to the original audience, that was an important word to them as well. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word gospel, because we have come to use that word for everything from a genre of music to the first four books of the New Testament to just when we're telling the truth, I'm telling you the gospel truth, right? So we can mean a lot of things when we say gospel. I want you to know what these folks, what their understanding of that word would be. It is a word that means good news, but it's good news that would be proclaimed to them by a herald from the king, which is what they would be expecting when you say Christ died for our sins. They would be expecting good news or an announcement from a herald sent by the king. And most of the time, it would be news about some victory in a war that the king had won for the people or that there was the coronation of a new king. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered inscriptions, one uh, in particular that says the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. You see, we attach you know, kind of church uh, language and a church meaning to these words, but they were used in the culture already. The early Christians and Jesus himself were borrowing these terms that already existed in the culture. So the original audience, when they heard, hey, this is good news, this is a gospel, they're expecting an announcement from the king that there's been a new king coronated or that there's some battle that the king has won on their behalf. Maybe from Greek literature. You remember that story about the Battle of Marathon where after the Greeks are successful and defeat the Persians, that the messenger runs from Marathon 26 miles back to Athens in order to be the herald to declare the good news that Greece had won. 
And of course, his legend tells us he collapsed and he dies after running uh, that length of time. And we read about that in Greek literature, which would have happened 400 or so years before the cross. And so when Paul talks about the gospel and being a herald of the gospel, they're expecting him to announce good news of a new king or a battle that's been won by the king on their behalf. And that's exactly what Palm Sunday is about. Jesus is declaring himself to be the king. And as we follow along that week, he goes to battle for us and wins the war for us over sin and death so that we won't be slaves to those things from now on. That's the gospel announcement that these folks would be expecting to hear. Now, I think it's significant that, that Jesus first uses the term gospel and then Paul picks it up. It's important for a few reasons. Notice the words that they don't use that they could have used. You know, this is not instruction. It's not commandments. It's not illumination, which a lot of religions would use. It's not wisdom, which Greeks would love, and they debated at the time. But this word gospel... This word for good news is about what the king has done for you. Not instruction or teaching or commandments about what you are supposed to do for the king. And that should shape our understanding of what the gospel is. The gospel is not about what we do to make ourselves right with God. The gospel is about what our king has done so that we can be made right with him. In fact, that makes Christianity different from just about every other religion, right? In every other religion, man does what he can do in order to get to God. I think in Islam, you've got the five pillars. In Buddhism, there's the eightfold path. In Judaism, you have the Ten Commandments. But, th but Christianity is not about how we can achieve a salvation. In Christianity, King Jesus has won the war and achieved a salvation for his people. So how did he do that? Well, we read Christ died for our sins. So let's talk about that for a few minutes. First, let's talk with this idea of sin. That's a tough one. We don't want to think that we sin. We want to think that we're pretty good people. I suppose maybe we do bad things every once in a while. But you know, sin is much more than just doing bad things. Uh, if you read Romans chapter 1, Paul does talk about the bad things that people who don't follow God do. But in Romans chapter 2, he talks about religious people who do good things, but they do them for the wrong reasons, for their own glory or to look good in front of people. And Paul says those things are sinful because even when we do good things with the wrong motivation, that it's sin before a holy God. In fact, Let's just think about it like this. I think this is a good way to talk about it. If there is a God who made you, if there is a being who sustains you, who holds you together, that your next breath, your next heartbeat, you are dependent on this God to give that to you, then of course that would mean that we owe him everything. 100% of all we have, 100% of all we are, 100% of
of the time. That's what we would owe to him because he has given that to us as our creator and the one who sustains us. And even if we were to do that for the rest of our lives, from now on, even if we were to give him 100% of all we are, 100% of the time, at the end of our life, it would still come up to less than 100% because of those times already in the past that we've not done that. And of course, uh, it would be impossible to do that as we move forward. So we see sin is not only hostility toward God, but it's also indifference to Him. Not giving Him the praise and the glory that He deserves. Not having the kind of gratitude that he made us and sustains us and provides for us. I wonder, how long can you go like God is not there? How long can you go without talking to him in prayer? How long can you go without hearing him speak to you in his word? If we're honest, we live lives of great indifference toward the one who has given us everything. And of course, the, what Jesus identified as the greatest command is that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, love our neighbor as ourself. It's why Romans 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For none of us have lived up to that standard. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what this verse is talking about when it says Christ died for our sin. In fact, the Bible gives us several pictures describing what happened that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And again, these are words that, that we have become, we associate with church or with religion. But really, they were just words used commonly in the day. Take a word like redemption. That's just a word that these folks would hear as something from the marketplace. See, the idea is sin is a debt. And in this society, if you could not pay the debt, if you had a debt that you owed that you could not pay, then you were enslaved to that person until the debt was paid. And so the idea of redemption or to redeem somebody would be to pay the amount owed so that that person could be free. That's all redemption is. In fact, even to this day, if you have an iTunes gift card, you click that button that says redeem. Because this word is simply from the marketplace. And the picture that the Bible gives us is that we have this debt that we owe that we cannot pay. And as we sang earlier, Jesus paid the debt for us, that Jesus paid it all to redeem us from the slavery that we have to our own sin and the slavery of being enslaved to other people who oppress us. Another image the Bible uses all the time is the image of a law court. And the image is that sin is a violation of the law and that our sin deserves just punishment. And the idea the Bible gives of what happened that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday was that Jesus took the just punishment that we deserved in our place and that we go free, declared not guilty of the crime. 
We use the word justification. It's just a word from the courtroom. The Bible also uses the imagery of a battlefield. The idea is that sin is a powerful, evil force and that it lives inside of us, making war against the members of our body, forcing us to do things we don't want to do, and that it's a principle outside of us, people oppressing us, taking advantage of us. And so this sin is an evil force inside and outside making war against us, and Jesus fought the war against sin and death and was victorious over sin and death on our behalf, in our place. And so those are pictures of what happened that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday when Christ died for our sins. That is the good news of the gospel. The announcement that there's a new king who has won that battle on our behalf. Now just briefly, I want to look at verse 4 with you that says he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now we're going to talk about resurrection all this month, and so we'll talk much more about this concept. But right now, let me just answer the question. Why is his resurrection an important part of what happened that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday? Why is that part of what we have to include in order to get this right? Well, I guess the simple answer is this. If there's a debt that you did not owe or that you owe that you could not pay and somebody steps in and pays the debt, how do you know if the, if the debt has been paid in full? In this culture, you knew that the person had paid off the debt when they were released, when they were freed. And so for us, we know that the debt has been paid in full because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus, who gave his life and then is resurrected from the dead. Or the other picture we talked about, how do we know that the punishment we justly deserved has been fully satisfied? We owed our life. There was a death. Uh, The wages of sin is death. How do we know that the full penalty was paid? was because Jesus gave his life and then was resurrected in triumph over the grave. Or how do we know there's victory over sin? If Jesus just died and stayed in the grave, how do we know he won over sin or over death? So the resurrection is an important part of what our king has achieved for us. And it's really important for us, not just back then, but in the present day. If you're anything like me, sometimes I feel like I'm not worthy to come before God, that I'm too sinful, that I've done some things that are wrong, or I've been indifferent, and so then I have to work hard to earn my way back to come before a holy God. But when Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's like having a receipt saying that our debt has been paid in full, that that sin that keeps me from coming to him has been fully paid for, so that we can have restored relationship with our God. Not only is that important for us in the present, it's also important for us in the future. You see, we'll talk about this more as we go, but our future is not just that we're going to be this disembodied soul floating around in heaven someplace, but our future hope is that we will have resurrected physical bodies in a renewed earth, 
where there'll be no more brokenness or oppression, where there's no more injustice, where there's no more sickness or death. And what is our hope that God can make this world new like that? It's because he's raised Jesus from the dead, which shows us that God can breathe life where it did not exist before. If the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then that can be a reality for us as well. Well, let's spend just a moment talking about that second question. If that's what happened that week between Palm Sunday and Easter, Christ died for our sin, that he was buried, that he raised from the dead on the third day, how should we respond to that? You know, we all respond in some way. Sometimes we respond to Christianity with hostility. We're hostile to the Bible or toward God. For many of us, we just respond with indifference. It really doesn't make a difference in our lives and the way that we live. So how should we respond? Well, the text gives us some ideas about that. Verse 1 says that we receive the gospel and that we take our stand on it. You know, you're standing on something, right? There's something that you look to to give you life. There's something that gets you out of bed in the morning. There is something you look to to give yourself significance. There's something you look to for your identity. Is it this good news of what our king has accomplished? So we receive this news. We take our stand on it. Verse 2 says it saves us if we hold firmly to it. Do you hold firmly to the announcement of this good news? Verse 3 says that we receive it and we pass it on to others as of first importance. Does it have that kind of priority in your relationship with people that you would pass it on to others as of first importance? Verse 10 says receiving this good news of grace is not without effect, that it changes us. Have you been changed by this announcement of the good news? And verse 11 tells us it is something that we believe. As I conclude today, let me just leave us with a picture of how it is or what it could look like for us to receive or to hold firmly or to take our stand on what Jesus has done. For those of you with kids who are of school age, you're in the same boat that we're in. We're all homeschooling at this point in time and helping our kids to learn. And one of my girls right now is in that part of U.S. history where we have the Homestead Act, where we wanted to encourage people to expand westward and to take advantage of this land that we had here in our country. And so the government was willing to give land to people if they would go and live on it. And so we were studying about that. It reminded me of a story that I heard of when some pioneers were making their way west to settle on land that had been opened up by this homesteading act. And so they were going west in covered wagons, drawn by oxen. There was a big group of them. They have children. They were moving along very slowly. And one day they spotted on the horizon a long long on the way on the horizon pillar of smoke, a long line 
of smoke stretching for miles across the prairie as the dry grass was burning and the fire was coming toward them quickly as it was blown along by the wind. Well, there seemed to be no way of escape. They weren't fast enough to to move backwards. They couldn't go north or south because the line of the fire was so wide and it seemed that they were doomed. But one of the group had an idea. They set fire to the grass behind them and then as the wind pushed that fire eastward, they moved back. And they stood in that area of prairie grass that had already been burned. And as they stood there, one of the kids cried out, There's fire behind us. There's fire ahead of us. We're all going to be burned. And the leader of the group calmed the child by saying, The flame cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already burned. And the entire group was saved as the fire went by. That is a picture of the believer standing in the good news of the gospel, standing in that good news that Christ died for our sins, which means the fire of God's judgment burned Jesus. And now all who are in Christ are safe forever, for we are standing where the fire has already burned. Will you receive that message, that announcement, that good news? Will you stand in it? Will you hold fast to it and be saved? Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this announcement of good news. Thank you for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Help us to receive it, to believe it, to stand firm in it, and to hold on to it firmly that we might be saved. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.